Welcome to Live at America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs. What happens when religious liberty collides with anti-discrimination laws meant to protect LGBTQ people? Addressing this question head-on, scholars and advocates from all sides of the debate sit down for a civil dialogue moderated by NCC President Jeffrey Rosen. Jeff is joined by Matt Sharp of the Alliance Defending Freedom, who represented the baker at the center of the Masterpiece Cake Shop case that refused to create a cake for a same-sex wedding, and Tobias Wolf of Penn Law School, who has represented gay couples that have been denied similar services. Also on the panel are religion and constitutional law scholars Robin Fretwell Wilson of Illinois College of Law and Elizabeth Clark of Brigham Young University Law School. To get the debate started, here's Jeff. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Constitution Center. It is so wonderful to see all of you lifelong learners here for this urgently important discussion about the future of religious liberty. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president of this wonderful institution, and I would like now those of you who have been here before, which I know as many of you, to recite with me our inspiring <laughs> mandate so that we can prepare the congregation for the uh, spiritual and constitutional and secular tasks ahead of us. Ladies and gentlemen, the National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. Beautiful. Oh, it's so inspiring. Tonight's program is presented in partnership with Interfaith Philadelphia as part of its year-long Year of Civil Conversations initiative, like the Constitution Center, they are determined to provoke civil conversations and encourage respectful listening and civil dialogue. We're so grateful to them for their partnership, and it's now my great pleasure to welcome our incredibly distinguished panelists. Elizabeth Clark is Associate Director for International Law, for, for the International Center for Law and Religious Studies at Brigham Young University School of Law. Robin Fretwell Wilson is the Roger and Stephanie Joslin Professor of Law and Director of the Family Law and Policy Program at the University of Illinois College of Law. Matt Sharp is Senior Counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. And Tobias B. Wolf is Professor of Law, Deputy Dean of Alumni Engagement and Inclusion at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Please join me in welcoming our panelists. Uh, Tobias, let us start with you. Our goal tonight is to give our audience a sense of this dynamic and important area of the Constitution and religious freedom, and particularly the emerging clash in some cases between claims of equality and claims of religious liberty. And one of the Supreme Court's most important recent pronouncements on that question was a case called uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop, which many of the audience will know, involving the baker who refused to sell a cake to a gay and lesbian couple. The court avoided the central constitutional issue in that case, but teed it up for future cases. Give us a sense of what the court held in Masterpiece Cake Shop and what you think of the holding. Sure, thank you. And thank you all for being here tonight. Uh, it's really great to have this kind of audience to talk to. Uh, and uh, in order to give a sense for what the Masterpiece Cake Shop case was about, I think it's helpful also to just give a little background about litigation in the area of anti-discrimination laws and 
uh, attempts to raise constitutional objections to their application in the commercial marketplace. Uh, and this is a type of argument that we have seen going back to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Uh, certain businesses objected to having to uh, desegregate and, and operate their businesses on a racially uh, integrated fashion um, and raised arguments uh, ranging from the 13th Amendment that they were being compelled to provide labor that they didn't want to provide uh, to arguments about the First Amendment. There was a case involving a private school that was told that they were not allowed to reject black students as applicants to their school. And they made the argument that we are a school, we have a set of beliefs that we wanna uh, uh, teach and to promote as part of our mission as a private school. Uh, our beliefs have to do with racial segregation, the separation of the races, uh, the superiority of uh, the white race as a sort of exemplar. And if we have to allow non-white students and particularly African-American students into our institution, we're not going to be able to exemplify our message. We are not going to be able to sort of live our truth that is the message we want to promote. And the court rejected that argument really quite unceremoniously and said, look, you can teach whatever you want. It's not our job to tell you what to teach. Uh, but the discriminatory decision to reject certain applicants from your school is conduct. And that is conduct that the state can regulate and that in fact Congress has regulated. So that issue has come up in a new way in uh, a number of different settings, one of which is the, the commercial marketplace of public accommodation setting. Now that we have an increasing number of laws that provide anti-discrimination protections to people uh, on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. It's a fact that a lot of people don't know that in fact, uh, a lot of uh, states don't have any protections for LGBT people from discrimination in the workplace and the marketplace, uh, but an increasing number of states do. And the circumstance has begun to arise where a business will say, we don't wanna serve gay people. We don't wanna serve gay couples. We don't wanna serve transgender people, whatever the case may be. And the customers who are turned away from the business on, this, on these grounds will bring a complaint with often a state civil rights uh, or um, um, a human rights commission or a civil rights commission. And when it is clear that they have in fact been turned away because they are a gay couple, for example, then there is, generally speaking, a fairly unambiguous violation of the statute. And then the question becomes, does the business have a constitutional right to a special exemption from that statute if they have certain kinds of objections? And we've seen two kinds of objections in these cases. One is a religious objection. Uh, business owners saying, we have faith-based beliefs. Those beliefs reject the idea of embracing same-sex couples on equal terms. We're not willing to provide you goods and services because we simply have objections to people like you or to relationships like yours. The second type of argument is a speech clause, a free speech argument. And there, some businesses have said, our goods and services that we provide have creativity involved in them. They have artistry involved in them. And if you force us to take customers we don't want to take, that's the equivalent of forcing us to engage in speech we don't want to engage in. We have to produce a piece of uh, artwork in the form of a decorated cake or in the form of wedding photography services that we don't want to provide. And therefore, the First Amendment says we don't have to abide by anti-discrimination laws. Uh, a number of state cases have presented this issue, perhaps at least for a while, the most high profile uh, was a case that I was involved in as uh, lead appellate counsel called Elaine Photography versus Willick. It was a case involving a lesbian couple, uh, Vanessa Willick and her partner, who were my clients, uh, who were turned away from a commercial wedding photography business in New Mexico because they were a lesbian couple. 
Uh, we litigated that case through the New Mexico Supreme Court and they got a unanimous victory from the court saying that the law protected them and that the First Amendment didn't provide any special exemption to that law. Uh, and then we kept it out of the Supreme Court despite the, the confident pronouncements of the Supreme Court bar, these very self-important lawyers in Washington DC who are the sort of justice whisperers um, who said, oh, the court's gonna take this case. Well, they didn't. Uh, but the other case that the court did take is Masterpiece Cake Shop. And that case presented both the speech argument and also kind of at the last minute, an argument of religious discrimination on the part of the Colorado courts in the way that they enforced their anti-discrimination laws in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case in which this gay couple was turned away in comparison to a case brought by a sort of tester, somebody who was going in to businesses and asking to be served and to have sort of anti-gay cakes produced. In essence, to provoke the response, we don't make hate-filled or hate-messaged cakes. And then to say, well, you're discriminating against me because of my religion and therefore I'm entitled to the same protection. And uh, in ways that we can talk about further, time permitting, um, the Supreme Court found in Masterpiece Cake Shop that there was enough of a basis for believing that the laws of Colorado had been applied differently to the religious tester who had gone into these shops uh, than it had been applied to the gay couple who was turned away from Masterpiece Cake Shop. I actually think the court was incorrect in saying that, but that is what the court held. And so the court didn't wind up deciding the big speech clause issue uh, and instead issued a ruling which if the court really means what it says, is a very powerful tool potentially in the hands of religious adherents claiming discrimination and maybe in the hands of everybody claiming discrimination based upon differential application of the laws. It remains to be seen if the court really believed what it said in Masterpiece Cake Shop or if it just decided that it wasn't ready to decide this big First Amendment question and therefore it kind of ducked the issue. Thank you for teeing us up so well. Matt, what do you make of that punt in the Masterpiece Cake Shop and what are its implications for people claiming discrimination of all kinds? And then tell us squarely how you think the court should rule when it confronts the two constitutional issues that Tobias flagged. Is there a free exercise exemption from uh, anti-discrimination laws and is there a free speech exemption from anti-discrimination laws uh, moving forward? Sure, um, and so also thank you for having me and it's, it's a pleasure to be here. So uh, we had the, the privilege of representing Jack Phillips, um, who's a wonderful man, gladly serves anyone that walks into his shop, um, doesn't care what your sexual orientation, religion, whatever it is, he's happy to serve you, but there are some messages that he doesn't feel he can use his artistic talents to create. Um, that ranges everything from Halloween cakes to uh, anti-American cakes and things like that. And one of them, when he was approached by this couple that asked him to do a cake, a custom cake celebrating their same-sex wedding that he declined based upon his religious convictions. Um, as Tobias was saying, the, the case worked its way through. And, and one of the important aspects was the, the commission that was involved in hearing this case had, had made some comments, one in particular to the effect of um, religious beliefs by, like Jack, this, this idea of religion is, is a despicable piece of rhetoric that's been used to justify uh, terrible things throughout history, the Holocaust, et cetera. And this is part of the, the justification that the Supreme Court looked at. As they said, when you are going before what's supposed to be a, a neutral body, these human rights commissions, you ought to know that you're gonna have a fair shake without regard to your religious convictions. And it appears that these commissioners were not giving Jack a fair shake. 
uh, because they were clearly looking at his religious beliefs about marriage as something that is a, quote, despicable piece of rhetoric. And so part of the Supreme Court's ruling was, was focused on um, this idea of religious hostility. And I think they really approached it in two, two ways. Number one was the commission itself in these comments uh, disparaging Jack's beliefs. And they said, when you go before these bodies, if you've got evidence that, that you're not getting a, a neutral arbiter of your rights, then that's problematic. But as Tobias mentioned, there's also this element of the uh, unfair application of the law, that this other individual that went to several bakers in town and asked for a, a cake with sort of a message opposing same-sex marriage, several bakers declined to do those. And the commission said, well, absolutely, you do not have to create those. If you find that message offensive, then you shouldn't be forced to create it. But then looked at Jack and said, well, it doesn't matter that you found this message in conflict with your beliefs. You have to create it. And so one of the things the court point out is you can't be sort of uh, this differential treatment of what is offensive to say, well, we think this is offensive and therefore you don't have to speak that message, but this is not offensive and therefore you must, is that the, the government should not be in the business of deciding what is offensive and what is not. That ought to be left up to individual conscience. And so looking forward at where these cases are heading, I, I want to talk a little bit about what happened just after Jack's case, because I think this shows to where it's going. So just a few weeks after Jack won at the U.S. Supreme Court, he found himself being dragged into court by this same commission again. Uh, this time it was an individual that approached him and said, I want a, a celebration of my gender transition. I want a cake that's blue on the outside, but uh, pink on the inside to, to show that I'm uh, coming out and identifying as a woman. And Jack, again, declined to do so based on his beliefs about uh, God creating male and female. And so the same commission drags him after just winning at the Supreme Court and doubles down on this religious hostility. Several of the commissioners said, we agreed with those statements about religion being despicable. And that to me shows where I think the future of, of these are headed, is that these conflicts are becoming more and more not about um, you know, the neutral application, but, but going after individuals whose beliefs we don't like and punishing them even after winning at the Supreme Court. And so I think that's where the court's holding of this uh, importance of there not being religious hostility I hope is gonna have teeth because we're seeing that these laws are actually being used in that method to show religious hostility to say, we don't like your beliefs, whether it's marriage or a variety of other issues, and we're going to punish you for holding those beliefs. Going to the free speech, I'll just touch on it real quick. Uh, you know, obviously we, we had hoped the court was gonna reach that issue. I think two important points. One, the court didn't completely throw it away. They, they recognized that as new cases arise, that there's new, uh, new instances where we're going to have to be called upon to determine what is speech and what is not, and what does the First Amendment protect. Um, there's a lot of cases in the pipeline, uh, several we're involved in, dealing with videographers, uh, florists, and others. There's a case requesting review by the Supreme Court by another set of bakers based in Oregon. So I think the court is going to address this issue. They're going to be called upon to say, what is speech? What is the protection afforded to it when it uh, comes into these non-discrimination laws? And how can we make sure that the government never has the ability to compel individuals to create speech, create expression, or endorse ideas that they uh, disagree with? And I think that was another one of the central holdings from the court this past term. Uh, thank you, and it's great to hear from two distinguished litigants on different sides of these cases and to understand the uh, facts. So, Robin, give us a sense of the substantive constitutional arguments uh, for free exercise and free speech. Uh, Matt mentioned cases involving videographers and florists that raise free speech claims and others involving free exercise claims. 
Um, describe the nature of the free speech claim when it comes to a videographer of a, or a florist. They're, they're claiming that they have an expressive right not to be forced to speak in a way that they disagree with. And what do you make of that free, of free speech claim? So let me um, sort of split the baby here and say two things that are not quite where Tobias and Matthew have been. Um, one is, I don't see this as a win for Jack Phillips. He can't make another cake without being called to the carpet by the authorities in Colorado, right? And that's partly because the law was written without this problem in mind. So if you go back to every single one of the cake maker photographer cases, even Tobias's case all the way back in New Mexico, the underlying law that is being used to decide whether you have the ability to step off or you have a duty to serve was written before marriage equality came on the scene, before the right to marry was there. And so the lawmakers who were writing these rules were not writing them with this kind of clash in mind. And that's really significant because they didn't have an opportunity to try to say, how are there two very important, in fact, parallel claims being made here? Tobias is right. There are 32 states in the United States that say that, you know, if you are with your same-sex partner, you can be kicked out of Subway. By the way, Pennsylvania is one of them. Pennsylvania is one of them. And in the other 18 states, you know, New Mexico, other states, Colorado, where this case came uh, forward, masterpiece, there's a law that says that can't happen. But that law wasn't written in a conscious way to leave enough room for people of faith. So you can actually think of it as a public square. In 32 states, the public square is sort of occupied by religious folks, and LGBT folks can just get out. And it gets reversed in the other set of states, where religious folks can just get out. Now, I think both of those outcomes is wrong. I also think that we misstep when we want to use constitutional principles to figure all of this out. And I'll give you an example of that. Tobias talked about the old case, Piggy Park, right? So it was the barbecue that didn't want to serve uh, African-American people and tried to hide behind a religious claim to do that. And the court said no. Now, I think that's right. I think you don't have a free exercise claim to avoid these kinds of anti-discrimination rules. But notice what happened in Title II when Congress enacted it in, what, 1964, right? They regulated to five very narrow silos. So restaurants, entertainment venues, common carriers like hotels, they did not have this leveling principle that said that uh, religious faith doesn't matter at all. They said as to those five narrow things, we're not going to build in a specific religious exemption. And we're gonna talk about religious exemptions later, so I won't spend a whole lot more time than that. But I think it's a fool's errand to try to ratchet every single one of these clashes through you know, either a speech claim about expression, you know, or through a generalized protection against uh, or for religious belief. 
We are going to have to sit together in conversations like this in state houses and figure out how we live again as one American people. And that's going to not be done by the courts. That's going to be done by you. Thank you so much for that. Um, Elizabeth, explain more about Robin's really fascinating claim that 30-odd states allow gay couples to be discriminated against on the subway and a similar number don't. What do those laws look like? And what do you make of them? And how do you think that that class should be resolved? Well, we certainly see these kinds of laws that Tobias mentioned that go back to the Civil Rights Act, trying to protect um, against discrimination in public accommodations is the term. Um, Meaning, depending on the state, hotels, restaurants, stores in general. Um, And the question is, first of all, do these state laws even cover sexual orientation or gender identity? Some of them don't. Many of them don't, as Robin mentioned. Um, we tend to assume they have, but it's not. Right now, you'll see there's um, the Federal Equality Act that's pending in Congress and some of the discussions surrounding that along these similar lines, trying to enact these protections for LGBTQ communities. Um, but I think sometimes we can get so mired in the details that we forget to step back a minute, say that these issues actually aren't as common as one might think if you look at the newspapers. Um, Masterpiece Cake Shop, that's all anyone talks about in some ways with uh, First Amendment law, and rightly so. It's a very difficult and important discussion of how our commitments to equality and liberty in the United States come together. How can we bridge those? How can we treat people in such a way that, that, that we respect their equality before the law and allow some space for liberty for people, say in this case, of religious faith communities and their beliefs. Um, I think what we see is that although these are major societal issues that we're still working through as a society and as a community, that there are a lot fewer laws. There are a lot fewer constitutional um, ways that these bump up against. Maybe I'll talk about this later if we have time, but the shrinking of protections for religious beliefs and free exercise and manifestations of belief in the U.S. since 1990s has meant that these cases, as uh, Vice mentioned, tend to come up in a free speech context when they do come up. Um, that the, 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 the conflict that we see between religion and LGBT rights doesn't necessarily exist as such in the law. Right? There's a question about free speech. Is this speech? Is a cake speech? There's a question about whether the type of discrimination in this case, was the discrimination against the gay couple as a as gay couple, or was it against the message that he was trying to present, present on the case? The facts aren't entirely clear. It's a messy case. Um, you know, I've watched law professors argue back and forth about what exactly happened in this case and what exactly we're deciding. And I think um, that because of that, we sometimes miss the bigger picture, which is, I I agree with Robin on this, that as a community, we need to sit down and work through some of these issues together to talk, to learn, to expand our, use our contribution to building a pluralistic system that the Constitution envisioned in the first place. Many thanks for that. So what I learned from this really fascinating exchange, many things, but you're uh, teaching us that 
some state laws explicitly single out discrimination against LGBT people as prohibited and others don't. Uh, and you say that that kind of clash is more significant than the constitutional claims for religious liberty, which don't arise so often, although you say that the constitutional claims for free speech uh, arise more frequently. Jeff, could I follow up briefly sure. on, on that exact issue and, and touch on a couple of things that Robin and Elizabeth said? Um, first of all, um, this is a set of questions that, in my view, need to be answered with respect to a, a general principles that we are comfortable with. And Robin is obviously correct that in the sort of real day-to-day -day work of crafting legislation, compromises have to get made, negotiation has to happen. But if we are prepared to say that under certain circumstances, religious adherents get exemptions that other people don't from abiding by laws that regulate all of us, then that's a worthy conversation to have. Uh, but it's a conversation that I think we need to have with respect to not just how do gay people get treated under the law or how do trans people get treated under the law, but how do all people get treated under the law? And if we want to have a conversation about exemptions from anti-discrimination laws that a business owner can invoke to turn away a transgender customer, turn, turn away a lesbian couple, then we have to be comfortable with that same law being able to be invoked to turn away an evangelical Christian or to turn away an African-American, or to turn away a woman. If a business owner says, I have a religious belief that women should not be appearing in public with their faces uncovered outside the company of a man. That's my religious belief, and if you don't adhere to that profile, you can't do business in my shop. We need to be comfortable with the principle that there is a space where religious belief or religious devotion can be used as a basis for an exemption from a law across the board. And second, because some of the cases that are coming across the board in courts and, and in legislatures today involve people who are uh, articulating religious objections to LGBT customers or employees or whatever the case may be. Uh, there is a tendency to talk about this as some kind of clash between LGBT equality and religious belief. First of all, whose religious belief? I mean, let's be clear. There are plenty of very devout people of faith who have a sort of powerfully grounded belief in the equal dignity, not just of LGBT people, but of our relationships and of our place in the world. And second, insofar as what we're talking about is crafting uh, provisions and laws, crafting exemptions that would have as their precept that there is some kind of inherent incompatibility between full participation in civil society by LGBT people and religious belief, such that we need to be finding solutions or resolutions to these problems that are distinct and that wouldn't necessarily apply in the context of race or gender or other religious belief, whatever the case may be. I reject that categorically. I think it's untrue descriptively. And I think that the damage that would be done by writing into our laws that we should treat LGBT identity and LGBT personhood as somehow structurally incompatible with religious beliefs such that we need to deal with it in a kind of separate category of legal regulation, I think that would be damaging in a whole new set of ways. I think a, a round on this would be great because it's such a rich conversation. Matt, um, Tobias just said he does not think there should be a constitutional right uh, rooted in the free exercise clause to exemption from 
anti-discrimination That's laws. actually not what I just said, but that's a worthy conversation to have. <laughs> but that's not actually what I just said, just to well, be clear. Um, all right, well, then I'll say that you said it, because I want to hear what Matt thinks about it. Fair enough. But I did hear you say that you did not think that uh, religious people should have a special right to discriminate against LGBT people, because that could lead to discrimination against not only LGBT No, people. what I said was or that whatever answer that we have about the ways in which religious belief can be used as a defense to an anti-discrimination law, we need to be comfortable with that answer across the board. Yes. So, Matt, you think that, there, that religious belief should be uh, the grounds for an exemption from anti-discrimination laws. Tell us about why, and are you comfortable with the results of that across the board? Yeah. So, you know, you step back and, and you look at why do we even have, you know, this sort of the free exercise clause. And there was this original understanding from our founders that there are certain spheres that the government doesn't have the right to touch. Um, the, the, the interactions between an individual and, and how they relate to God, the government has no authority there. And so there's this, all this idea of we, we don't want the government interfering and saying, well, I know your conscience tells you this, but you're wrong. Um, and so there was this, this deep respect to say, we're not going to uh, pick and choose among religions. We're going to leave that between you and, and whatever your religious convictions are, and the government's going to take a step back. And then you see this line of cases that is largely respected that. I mean, there's one, uh, Thomas, that, that dealt with a sort of an individual objecting to, to helping participate in some of the war efforts. And, you know, they're saying, well, your, your beliefs don't even line up with a particular church. And the court took a very hands off and said, look, it, it's never up for the government to decide whether your beliefs are, uh, you know, reasonable or not. It's really, you know, we take a hands off approach. And I think that's one of the issues we're dealing with with a lot of these things is we're having more and more the government intervening and saying, well, we're not really comfortable with how that belief is expressing itself, and we're not comfortable with how you're trying to live out your life and live out your faith in this way, and so we're going to enact these laws that let us go after you and punish you for attempting to do so. And I think, to me, a better solution, and, and, and they brought it up, is that there are you know, approximately 30 states that have not adopted these laws, from Pennsylvania to where Georgia from I'm based, and yet, we as individuals have come to a conclusion that says no one should be subject to unjust discrimination. And so as they brought up, we're not seeing a lot of these cases because society has sort of come to its own sort of social norms of what is permissible and what is not. And so what the issue is, is, is they're trying to do these laws, like they mentioned, you know, the Equality Act and Fairness for All and some of these others at the federal level that are trying to nationalize what happened to Jack Phillips and some of those. I think one question is... Tell, tell us what those laws are, just so we understand. Sure. So Equality Act, Fairness for All, the, the, the law involved in Jack's case was a law that took the existing uh, non-discrimination laws and said, we're going to add sexual orientation and gender identity as additional classifications in those. And so these, whether it's Equality Act, Fairness for All, they do that same thing, taking those and, and elevating those at the federal level. Um, and this is what has, we've seen recently, these laws being used to go after people of faith. Uh, other individuals even go after a women's shelter in Alaska that's trying to maintain a place of, of safety and dignity for the women involved. And so I think a fundamental question is, do we really need these laws? Is there the widespread systematic discrimination that justify those civil rights laws in the first place going on now? Or have we as a society sort of self-remedied a lot of these issues such that we're actually creating more problems and enacting them than if we just sort of let individuals and organizations and culture deal with this as it largely is? Great. So, well, not necessarily great to everyone, but, but very well, <laughs> well explained. Um, uh, 
Robin, I think there are two issues on the table. Uh, one is uh, the whether there should be federal and state explicit protection for LGBT people from discrimination, and the other is whether there should be exemptions based in the Constitution or in statutes uh, like the Religious Freedom Restoration Act for religiously conscious people from existing anti-discrimination laws. So you can address either of those, but I really, let's get a sense of whether you think that there should be religious exemptions, whether rooted in the Constitution or in federal statutes from anti-discrimination laws. So let me take both, but I'll take this, the, the last point from Matthew first. Yeah, there's real discrimination. There is, come on. So I'll just give you a specific example. I spoke to the Commissioner of Civil Rights in Ohio, one of your neighbors, who also, by the way, doesn't, the Ohio doesn't uh, prohibit sexual orientation or gender identity discrimination. And I wanted to ferret out whether it was real because of exactly this argument. Well, it's all taking care of itself. So the Civil Rights Commissioner told me a story about a case called Maitland versus Evita. There's this kid who was at the cosmetic school, Evita, and um, the allegation is that the sort of teacher, supervisor in charge said to the kid, get out, you Jewish faggot. Now stop for a second. Every state, virtually every state in America says, and federal law says, uh, that it's wrong to kick out somebody because they're of the Jewish faith. Like, can we agree? Right? Wrong. That's wrong. And it's wrong to kick out somebody because of who they love. Also wrong. This isn't complicated. Now, whether that kid got kicked out because he was Jewish or a, quote, faggot doesn't really matter over much to him. He's still harmed. And in this country, we should be evaluated on our merits. That's like the American dream. And if there are folks who, or characteristics, who, that, that cause others to treat us illicitly and unjustly, and that's unjust in faith traditions, true, too, by the way, right? Then we ought to say no to that as a people. Now, on the other side of that, people say, well, you know, anytime you try to write this sort of new script for peaceful coexistence that I've been talking about, that means you're doing one-off rules and you're being mean to gay people. That's actually not true. So let's just talk about a specific example that we would call a religious exemption in our federal law now, Title VII. So Title VII says you can't discriminate on the basis of race or religion or national origin in hiring. Okay, sounds right to me. Now, when Congress prohibited discrimination on the basis of religion, actually was sort of taking something really significant and important away from religious groups, which were the ability to norm and to create like communities of like-minded believers, including workers. So I'll just pause for a second. Think about the Sierra Club. Any supporters of the Sierra Club here? Yeah, I love the Sierra Club, right? Okay, so should the Sierra Club have to hire as its CEO a climate denier? No! Nobody in their right mind thinks that the Sierra Club should be run by a climate denier. But Congress didn't actually prohibit discrimination against climate deniers in Title VII. It did prohibit discrimination on the basis of religion. Now, what does that mean? It means that, that the Sierra Club should be able to hire to its mission. 
And when Title VII said no religious discrimination generally, and then backed out the ability of religious groups to hire to mission, all they were doing was putting religious groups back in the same position as the Sierra Club. So think how nonsensical it would be for the Archdiocese of Philadelphia not to be led by a Catholic. Like, that's stupid too. But all of that's in a non-commercial setting. Well, even that's what the Title VII exemption so, applies well, let, to. Then, then let's talk about commercial settings yeah. too, Tobias. Let's. I mean, so there is a principle in Title VII, which I think is an important principle. It's not without cost, but it's an important principle that is about allowing non-commercial religious organizations to maintain a community of co-religionists. And that is a principle that generates strife sometimes because it, for example, uh, uh, sometimes is offered as a justification for uh, not hiring or firing single women who get pregnant uh, on the argument that you are failing to adhere to a tenet of our belief, right? Because you're having sex outside the context of marriage. Turns out almost never do men get fired because they're being sexually active outside the context of marriage for some reason. But nonetheless, this is a serious conversation to have about how these two laws should intersect with each other. And just so, the Equality Act and other proposals to uh, extend anti-discrimination protections to gay people, I think should have to abide by the same set of rules that other forms of discrimination protection abide by when it comes to drawing distinctions between commercial and non-commercial organizations, for example. But if we were to take the very important example of, of allowing religious organizations to maintain a community of believers rather, and, and discriminate based on co-religionists and say, and that's enough like saying, and you can also exclude gay, lesbian, and transgender people if that's incompatible with your belief system, even if you can't exclude people of color and women and uh, non-citizens, because we just see those as different issues. That's where I get uncomfortable, because if the argument is LGBT identity is so inherently wrapped up with religious belief and objection that we have to think of those two things in the same category, I think that's descriptively untrue. I think it is an ahistorical perspective and that in, at various points, white supremacy was very much wrapped up in uh, ardent expressions of religious belief and the idea that you could protect people against racial discrimination was seen as utterly at odds with people's readings of their uh, religious texts. I am open to these conversations. I have a view about how this balance should be struck and it may be different from others on this panel. I'm open to the conversation. I am quite resistant to the suggestion that the balance should be struck one way for LGBT people and another way for everybody else. I didn't get to finish that sentence though. That is not what I'm suggesting. Okay. So I wanna be absolutely clear, but a public square is shared by everybody. And if we set this up to be an impossible mountain to climb, that we can protect LGBT people and protect people of faith, we will find that we don't protect LGBT people. We haven't had a new full-on LGBT non-discrimination law in America since 2007, precisely because of this. We have to find a new script for living together. Justice Clark, can you adjudicate this <laughs> debate, which has turned out to be more about federal statutes about the Constitution. I keep asking about the constitutional question, but you can weigh in on, on both of them. I'll weigh in on both, and I will, okay. I will get back to the, to the constitutional question as well. So thank you for promoting this. Yes. You know, I hear what Tobias is saying about we don't want a double standard, that somehow religious attitudes towards the LGBT community should be different than religious attitudes towards any other group that gets discriminated against. Um, I think, you know, 
in the law schools, we often hear that um, hard facts make bad cases. Um, if we pick the most difficult discussion, then it is harder, I think, than if we work into it through some principles. And I think that the question of um, discrimination in public places is probably the hardest one for advocates of religious liberty. Um, but working back into it, sort of why do we care? You know, going back to the constitutional issue, uh, the Constitution, in addition to protecting equality in numerous ways, explicitly protects um, the free exercise of religion. What that means, we're still seeing. It's changed over the last 20 years. The four justices Supreme Court recently suggested that they're happy to revisit that again and change the standard. Um, do we call that exemptions? Do we call that trying to be fair to religious organizations? There's different ways you can call it, but the question is, sort of, is should, at some level, should religious organizations and believers have some protection for their beliefs? And just at a really basic level, and some of this comes back to the fact that as a community, we expect that religious communities will step up to the plate when there is crises of war or famine or um, homelessness or opioid epidemics, we expect religious communities to be there. And in many cases, they are because they have things to offer. And just as the LGBT community has things to offer, we need each other. We can't do this American project without bringing out the best of every community. And for religious communities, that means protecting some of their core beliefs and identities, just as it does for LGBTQ individuals, protect their core beliefs and identities. Um, for religious groups, you can see sort of a, like a, a tiered level of sort of importance for religious communities. Being able to practice your religious beliefs internally inside your religious community and teach them to your, your beliefs to your family are core. I mean, I think this is where Tobias and Robin were, were trying to demarcate the line, right? And then there's the question, sort of religiously affiliated institutions. If you have religious schools, if you have religious hospitals, should those be able to live, be places where religious believers live out their beliefs and expect those who are part of the organization to live out their beliefs? I think what gets most difficult in this scenario and where some of the discussion we're coming through is that we're trying to sort through the, the hard, the, the sort of the broadest extent where religious beliefs um, intersect with the commercial world. Uh, and that field has been growing as the government has been growing from the time of the Constitution. We see an increase of the welfare state. And as the state increases, the potentials for conflicts in this commercial sphere have gotten larger and larger. I mean, that's where we see the Hobby Lobby case. So that's where we see Masterpiece Cake Shop. The, the state is increasingly trying to regulate healthcare, non-discrimination in public places. And I'm not suggesting that those are wrong, but I'm saying, suggesting that that's why these, these are coming to the fore right now. That one can disagree over whether there should be non-discrimination provisions in public accommodations laws, like in Masterpiece Cake Shop. But, one can, but we can disagree agreeably, hopefully, on some of those very difficult issues while still recognizing that we need both the LGBT community, we need the religious community. And those, each group 
that associates itself by identity has some things that are unique to it that require protections. And certainly for religious groups, that's the core of what was originally meant with the First Amendment protection um, and has had varied applications over the years. But this sense of being able to teach and live out your core values um, in a community that may not be as comfortable with them, and which is something I would guess that LGBT individuals are very familiar with as well, trying to live out their core identity and beliefs in a world that sometimes seems hostile and threatening. Thank you for adjudicating so thoughtfully. I want to put one big set of cases on the table and then try to take your questions, and that is the question of transgender students and uh, uh, bathroom facilities in schools. The Supreme Court recently refused to hear the Grimm case involving that question, but there are other cases uh, coming from the lower courts, and uh, the circuits are moving toward uh, ruling on opposite sides of those questions. Matt, can you tee up what the issues in those cases are, in particular in the Doe and Boyerton case, if I'm, if I'm getting it right? And, uh, and how the courts are coming down on both sides. Sure. Uh, and I think this demonstrates that this, these questions we're talking about with these laws are not just limited purely to LGBT and religion, but, but really bring in a lot of other issues going on. And, and the Doe versus Boyertown is among the cases that do that. Uh, here in the state of Pennsylvania, and it involves uh, really backs up where a, a redefinition of what the word sex means. And so we've been talking about federal law. Title IX is one of those that prohibits sex discrimination in the education context, uh, designed to ensure that women are getting equal opportunities in sports, academics, things like that. And a few years ago, uh, during the Obama administration, they issued a dear colleague letter saying, well, we're going to redefine this term sex to now include gender identity. And so therefore, in terms of your, your programs at your schools, in terms of your facilities, including showers, locker rooms, and restrooms, you have to no longer say this is the male restroom, female restroom, but rather, what do you identify as? And you are allowed to use facilities consistent with that. Uh, that was rolled back by the Trump administration, but uh, what happened in Boyertown was the school district said, well, we're gonna go ahead and adopt this policy anyways. And so our practice is gonna be whatever a student identifies as, uh, we are going to uh, allow them to use showers, locker rooms, restrooms, and other opportunities consistent with that. Well, this obviously creates concerns for a lot of other students. Um, and so this case involves several students who were shocked when this policy was not publicly debated, was not publicly disclosed, but rather the students first learn about it when he's in the male restroom and a, a, a female student that identifies as a male walks in as he's in the midst of undressing. Uh, another student, a female student, this happened in the female locker rooms as well. And so these cases are really going to these questions of, number one, what does the word sex mean? Does it maintain its original understanding as enacted by Congress as being sort of male and female based upon biology? Or is it subject to this new redefinition that now encompasses gender identity? But it shows that this is not just uh, you know, this one instance. We, there's other cases going on, uh, one not far from me in Georgia, unfortunately, involving a six-year-old girl and the school district there had adopted a similar policy. And uh, as a result of a boy being allowed to use the female restrooms, uh, this six-year-old girl in kindergarten was sexually assaulted by this boy in her school bathroom. Um, there's another case going on in Anchorage, Alaska, involving a women's shelter. And again, the, their uh, gender identity law is telling this women's shelter, you have to allow a man that identifies as a woman 
to be in the shelter, uh, to sleep no farther than Rob and I are away from each other. And yet this is a shelter that's saying we're supposed to be a place that, that's specifically focused on women that have suffered sexual abuse and assault. And we want to create a place where they feel welcome. And we can't do that if we're told we have to allow a biological male in the place. Uh, where is this issue going? The courts are split on this. They're, they're grappling with this, and some of them are saying, well, you know, we are going to redefine uh, sex. I think it was uh, Judge Posner in the Seventh Circuit that basically said, look, times have changed, and we're going to rewrite the law. Um, there's other courts that are saying, no, we have to respect that original intent of Congress. And if Congress wants to rewrite Title IX, it's free to do so. It knows how to insert gender identity is, uh, into the language. But I think that's showing where this is far beyond just a religious liberty issue, but even dealing with women's rights and you know, equality in sports and so many things like that, where a lot of even very radical feminists are saying, wait a second, um, we need to be understanding the impact these laws are having on what we've spent decades fighting for. Thank you very much for setting that up. Uh, Tobias, is, does this issue turn on the question of whether uh, the word sex in federal and state anti-discrimination laws covers gender identity, uh, or are there also issues of a balance between uh, considerations uh, of uh, privacy versus uh, that against discrimination. Describe the legal stakes uh, in all these cases and how you think they should be resolved. Sure, I'll, I'll address that in a moment. Let me just say a couple of things. Uh, I'm a great believer in, in civil discourse. Um, I don't have anything very polite to say about the disquisition that you just heard. Um, first of all, let me be clear. <clears throat> I respect trans people and in part that means describing and rendering their gender properly. Misgendering a trans person is an act of extraordinary social violence. And I find it despicable. And Matt is doing, making a choice by doing that. And I wanna call out that choice very explicitly. I've had the privilege of having some of my closest colleagues in the field of LGBT equality be trans men and women who are some of the most brilliant lawyers and citizens that I've ever worked with. I had the great privilege of representing a trans girl in New York City in a case involving uh, equal access to services in the foster care system in New York City. I've worked a lot with trans kids. I actually filed an amicus brief in the Gavin Grimm case on behalf of Gavin, uh, the boy who was involved in that case. And what I can tell you is this. We can talk about legal doctrine. We can talk about how sex is interpreted under, under Title IX. But if you don't understand that Trans people are some of the most courageous and some of the most extraordinary members of the American community. It takes more courage to walk out your front door as a transgender American than it does for almost any other person in the, the, the streets, walking down the street. And I have learned more about what it means to be a person of integrity and a person of conviction from the trans people that I have represented and the trans people I know than I've learned from just about anybody else. And as far as I'm concerned, Civil rights conversations about trans people are about if the American community is gonna wise up to the fact that we have some lessons to learn from these brothers and sisters whom we have been ignoring and disrespecting for so long. That's what I think is at stake in these cases. As far as the sort of legal question of the status of anti-trans discrimination under our laws, um, our laws have been interpreted for a very long time to make clear that sex and sex discrimination and protections against sex discrimination involve not just questions of DNA and not just questions of the configurations of people's genitals, which are things that you might be making a lot of assumptions about walking down the street, but you actually don't know much about with respect to most of the people that you encounter, uh, but also questions about gender identity. That is to say, questions about whether 
society or employers believe that your behavior is conforming when it comes to your appearance, when it comes to the, the, your mannerisms, when it comes to whether you're an aggressive person or a precocious person or a passive person, people associate those qualities with gender. And we have long said in many different settings, you're not allowed to punish people because they don't measure up to your gender expectations. You're not allowed to tell a man what a real man is and what a real man is not. That is not the way that we police gender in the workplace. And that is a well-established principle under the idea of sex discrimination. And the courts that have recognized that existing anti-discrimination laws that protect trans people from discrimination uh, should apply uh, simply based on the proposition that they prohibit sex discrimination have invoked that principle. And if one doesn't buy that principle, and there's a debate about it, and I'm happy to sort of have that debate, but you have to ask yourself what other forms of protection that all of us want about not being told how our gender is and is not going to operate are gonna be eroded and, and clawed back if we're gonna to try to carve trans people out of uh, existing protections for sex discrimination. That, I think, is what is at stake. Uh, thanks for that. I, I, uh, Matt, do you want to respond? Uh, you know, I, I think there is several issues there. And, and you know, we've talked about this discourse and dialogue. And I think one of the voices that's being lost and, and that we're, we're trying to raise in all of this is you're hearing more and more, again, women speaking out on this issue and saying, wait a second, this, this seems to be sort of erasing what we fought for, sort of our, our unique female identity. And I think that has to be part of this discussion as well. And to, to hear the stories of the, the, the young women who are saying, you know, I'm not comfortable with this. Um, you know, where is everything? Yeah, I think one of the stories, uh, I think it was Connecticut dealing with, you know, a young woman that, that lost a spot on sort of the podium essentially of a track meet because the policies were, we're going to allow you to play in the sports that you identify with. And so again, I, when we're looking at all of these, we're starting to see more and more of sort of the, the trickle down consequences in all of this. And I think that's what we're, we're trying to advocate for is that when this sort of wholesale, let's adopt these laws and some people are starting to push back and say, wait a second, we, we don't understand the implications. We don't understand how this is going to impact a lot of the other things that, whether it's religious liberty, whether it's women's rights, whether it's privacy. And I think that is part of what we are advocating for is to make sure that those are being talked about and that some of these that are constitutional freedoms that are enshrined as sort of our highest protections are not being trampled in, in this push to enact some of these laws. Thanks so much. Robin, is there a religious liberty dimension to these cases involving uh, claims of discrimination against trans people uh, or not? And are they focused mostly on uh, state uh, statutes, either allowing or forbidding, for example, uh, 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 certain kinds of uh, restrooms or not? Just describe the way that these cases are playing out. Yeah, I mean, I want to actually be responsive to the last two things um, in particular. So look, it's not just that people are passing laws to protect trans folks. It's that some organizations have pursued laws to exclude trans folks, right? And actually to take from municipalities in their own state the ability to be more protective. Now, we have constitutional law on that. You know, Romer versus Evans sort of said, you know, you can't just tell municipalities, Colorado in that case, that they can't be more protective of LGBT people. Well, it seems by the same principle, you ought not to be able to say, you know, to Charlotte, North Carolina, in the instance of the North Carolina bathroom bill, that they can't be protective of LGBT people. So we actually have sort of a push 
to disenfranchise trans people, to make them seem scary, precisely to avoid, I think, the idea that we're gonna have this conversation about living together as one American people. And if you're interested in those safety claims, I would invite you to read my article called The Nonsense About Bathrooms. The Nonsense About Bathrooms, where I go through and deconstruct the affidavits that were filed on behalf of North Carolina to say that trans people were somehow scarier than other people. And I literally take them paragraph by paragraph. There's a little chart in there. You can read it yourself. They boil down to this. Men are scary. Men go into bathrooms sometimes to molest children and do other creepy things, but not trans men. It's not something unique to a trans population. And I think we have to stop that. We have to stop vilifying if we're gonna get anywhere, I think. So now, we also have to remember that there are a lot of kids struggling with this. So Tobias talked only, not only about the sort of courage that people have as adults to be trans, but there is a serious consideration about how we support folks, younger folks who are cross-gender identifying. Now it's hard because lots of those kids do not stick by that. 97% of the kids who cross-gender identify as young boys, cross-gender identifying as girls, will not at the age of 18 have stuck by that. That's a heck of a thing for a policymaker to try to figure out what to do with, right? But we also know that if you're supportive of trans children as a parent, supportive socially of the way that they're presenting and how they're feeling, that you've reduced their risk like eightfold of suicide, attempting suicide, or of living with depression. So I think, you know, it's, with some of these things, we have to stop and remember that there is a real human element to this in every direction. Um, now, the states, you asked, um, you know, where we are. I think we've got to, to, to look really hard at attempts to try to take back these rights, you know, take back protections that municipalities have put in place because they've thought that, that there is a need. Thank you for that. Well, we are nearly out of time. Justice Clark, as you're sitting next to me, you get to have the last word oh, in this extraordinarily rich, complicated, and nuanced debate. Uh, which has been conducted at an extremely high level. So give us, give the audience your closing thoughts about the state of the law involving uh, discrimination against uh, trans people and how on a statutory and constitutional level you think it should be resolved. Well, thank you. I'm grateful to all my colleagues here. It's been a, a wonderful discussion. Um, I, I think that one of the, the aspects of these kind of discussions that gets lost sometimes is the commonalities. I think when we listen carefully to other people's sincerely held beliefs, we see they feel vulnerable. And I think you see this on both sides. I think, and I think people come into the discussion informed by their religious beliefs. People come into the discussion informed by their beliefs about identity, their ideas about what education's for. They come into it all of these issues. Um, but I think that at a core, we have to look for the well-being of the children and to, to search out what we can do that, to be there for trans kids that are in danger of suicide or of bullying and harassment. 
that we need to do everything we can to prevent that. I think that public schools is a different scenario than a, than a private school, and a college is a different situation than a kindergarten. I think there's a lot of different issues that come up here, but what's core is trying to resolve them with um, grace, with patience, with kindness, um, to look forward and think about how can we protect vulnerable children best? What can we do to accommodate? I mean, we tend to think of this kinds of issues as, well, we have the LGBTQ rights camp and we have religious freedom camp, but the truth is it's not two separate camps. The people from a wide range of perspectives, people who feel like they belong to both community, faith communities and LGBTQ communities, people whose religious beliefs bring them into the sphere, public sphere with concerns about gender identity issues and ones who don't. Um, and religious liberty, in my mind, doesn't require that the state always agree with all religiously informed beliefs that we bring into the public square. When we're in the public square, particularly public schools or field of commerce, those are issues where, as a religious, a member of faith community myself, I have to be willing to be, accept that majority rule and law may go against me. And there may be very good reasons that they should, um, but that I think when we, when we sit together, when we listen to each other, when we have these kind of civil conversations, we see that there are things that we can respect and learn from each other. And um, I think that gets lost a lot in these kinds of discussions um, where people's vulnerabilities push them to being aggressive rather than to sitting down and listening and trying to find practical workaround solutions, because there are practical workaround solutions. I've talked to a woman who served on a, on a, a school board in one of the top five largest um, counties in the United States. And she is a woman of faith, and she's a woman who cares passionately about protecting the rights of the LGBTQ community. And she worked through them in really practical ways. Okay, well, what can we do about, if there's concerns about bathrooms, how can we resolve these in a way that is, um, will maximally protect the students involved and show respect for them? And so that, I guess that's where I would end up, is this sense that we have more in common than we do not, that the American system of pluralism is one that is robust and large enough to accommodate the kinds of differences that we have. For conducting a difficult conversation with grace, with patience, and with inspiring civility, please join me in thanking our panelists. This program was presented in partnership with Interfaith Philadelphia as part of their year-long civil dialogue series, A Year of Civil Conversations. Today's episode was edited by Dave Stotts and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber. Mm -hmm.